Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile Essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. This week marks 25 years since the explosion of TWA Flight 800 off the south shore of Long Island. The 747 was headed from JFK Airport to Paris that evening. All 230 people on board were killed. I still remember that day so well, every moment of it. You will hear the story of how one woman's anguish inspired an entire organization that today helps others manage their grief. We'll also hear from the former governor of New York who still struggles with the memories today. Boy, it still seems so fresh. And uh, uh, the thing that I'll never forget was just the complete anguish and uh, and sorrow of the families who were arriving from all over the country and in fact all over the world many from france to find out what had happened to their loved one we'll hear from the people who responded to the crash site that night first you know you're coming out on a moonless night in the pitch black ocean you crest the horizon and you you see that the horizon is lit up and you think that's the lights of all the boats but when you crest the horizon you see it's a city of fire and we will hear about the investigation of Flight 800 from the award-winning CBS News journalist who wrote the book on it. They were driven to find the truth, not only to determine if this was a crime and if it was a crime, find out who did this, but also to give closure and give some sense of, of what happened to the victim's family members. This week on 880 In-Depth, our look back on the terrible tragedy of TWA Flight 800, which happened 25 years ago this week. And we asked the question, are we safer flying today because of what we learned from TWA Flight 800? The answer is maybe. Welcome to 880 In-Depth. I'm Tim Scheld, and this week, we remember. Coast Guard and the Navy remain on the job in the Atlantic looking for bodies and debris, and the all-important black boxes from the doomed TWA jumbo jet. There are endless theories about who or what may have been responsible for the crash, but none is being accepted by investigators as yet. It was hard to fathom at the time. A 747 headed out of JFK to Paris, roaring up into the sky as the sun set on the horizon. About 12 miles after takeoff, about 13,000 feet and climbing. Without warning or any radial call of trouble from the cockpit, 
the airliner burst into flames. Dozens, maybe hundreds of people along the coast of Long Island saw it happen. This man was out on the beach that night. Finished eating, the kids were roasting marshmallows. I was getting my last few minutes of fishing in, just getting dark, and I saw a, uh, a pop in the sky. Looked about the size of a penny to start with. Looked like a little flare, like someone who shoots up a boater. But almost immediately after I saw it, it started gaining in size and growing, and then it burst into one giant flame. Pat Milton is an investigative producer for CBS News and one of the best in the business. 25 years ago, she was the Long Island bureau chief for the Associated Press. I got a call from my office, and they said that a plane went down. And I thought initially it was just a commuter flight going out to Long Island to the Hamptons. And they said, no, Pat, this is a jumbo 747. And I was rolling, uh, got out right to the crash site as fast as I could and uh, commandeered a fisherman who was coming in from Fire Island and asked him to take me out to the crash site. And he didn't even know about the crash and uh, went out there and I had to use my uh, sweatshirt over my mouth and nose because the water was on fire with the fuel and uh, you couldn't stand the the smell or the fumes uh, in your eyes and nose. And uh, I spent the whole night uh, reporting from this man's uh, boat on a cell phone, reporting into the Associated Press, letting people know what what happened and what was happening. And uh, volunteers uh, came from all over. They were at barbecues on Long Island. They were, you know, water skiing, fishing, and uh, everyone just descended on the site uh, trying to, uh, you know, uh, commandeer a uh, trying to start a, a rescue mission. And unfortunately, it became clear uh, after an hour or so that it was a salvage mission. John Miller was a local TV reporter here in New York at the time. John is now deputy commissioner of the New York City Police Department for counterterrorism and intelligence. Back in 2013, John worked for CBS News and told this story about TWA 800. That would be the eeriest night of my life because first, you know, you're coming out on a moonless night in the pitch black ocean. You crest the horizon and you, you see that the horizon is lit up and you think that's the lights of all the boats. But when you crest the horizon, you see it's a city of fire. Much the same for Pat Milton, the CBS News producer who in 1999 wrote the book In the Blink of an Eye. It details the exhaustive FBI investigation of TWA Flight 800, and frankly, it humanizes it. We spoke this week about how right from the start, almost everyone thought it must have been a bomb or missile that took down this flight. There was no doubt at that point in their mind that this was not a crime. Um, Jim Kallstrom, who was the head of the FBI in New York at the time, he was coming out of a dinner at the Friars Club in Manhattan, and his beepers went off, and he called his office, and they told him that a plane had suddenly blown up in the sky that had taken off at Kennedy Airport. Well, 747s just don't fall out of the sky. So uh, he went down to the command post uh, downtown Manhattan for the FBI, and and they just sent out hundreds and hundreds of uh, agents. But interestingly enough, as as he was driving down the East River uh, Drive to his office, he got a call from one of his agents. It was actually one of his best friends. He was the best man at this man's wedding. And uh, he was an FBI agent, Charlie Christopher. 
and he called up and he said, Jim, Jim. And Jim said, Charlie, I can't talk to you. We've got a plane that's down. It could be terrorism. I'm getting down to the office. He said, Jim, wait. My wife was on the flight. And Calstrom just pulled his car over. He was just breathless. And this was his best friend, and he was the best man at their wedding. And uh, this man, Charlie Christopher's wife, was a flight attendant for TWA, and she was not supposed to be on the flight, but she traded with another flight attendant so that she could attend her son's uh, Boy Scout um, dinner uh, a couple of days from there. So um, it was just chilling, and it became immediately personal for the head of the FBI in New York. In the foreword of your book, you write, This is a story of heroism in a cynical world of ordinary men and women thrust into an extraordinary event who rose to the challenge. Uh, I'm I'm struck by that, and I'm also struck by the image. You know, I saw the movie Dunkirk uh, a year or two ago. This was a more modern-day Dunkirk, where people came, average citizens came from all directions to try and pitch in to help. No? Absolutely. It was ordinary men and women thrust into an extraordinary event. And uh, and it was just remarkable uh, how people were just so selfless. On the water, they were just, you know, combing the waters, looking for people that they could try to rescue. And they were pulling in bodies. Some of the Coast Guard people, they weren't uh, young men. They weren't even old enough to buy a beer in a, in a bar. And they're hauling in bodies and, and are just being so... Uh, sancti- they were just being so holy and, and, and treating them with such dignity and grace and respect. Uh, they were covering the bodies, and some of them were just even hugging them. Uh, you know, they were even, it was just an incredible scene to, to see. But, but I think that, that was one of the images that I have as a, a Coast Guardsman, barely old enough to buy a beer in a bar at that point hauling in bodies into the boat and and treating them with such grace and and such respect. Your your book about the FBI investigation uh, talks about how the FBI took the lead uh, behind the scenes for sure um, and painstakingly uh, made sure that any piece of debris was considered a piece of potential evidence, which made this a really exhaustive uh, and expansive investigation uh, by both the FBI and the N- NTSB. It really was a uh, a tiptoe of, um, you know, almost like a ballet of, of investigation because they really wanted to be careful to try and find the truth. That's exactly. They were driven to find the truth, not only to determine if this was a crime and if it was a crime, find out who did this, but also to give closure and give some sense of of what happened to the victim's family members. Um, You know, FBI does not investigate accidents. They investigate crime. And they thought this was a bomb or a missile. And they were mindful of the Pan Am 103 that went down in Lockerbie, Scotland. And it turned out to be just a tiny size of a penny computer chip that gave them the clue that that was a bomb on Pan Am 103. So they were mindful of that, and they kept talking about looking for the Eureka piece. They wanted to find that one little piece that would show them that this was a crime, that this was a bomb, or this was a missile. You know, they pushed the Navy to, and Coast Guard 
uh, and FBI divers to come up. They hauled in over one million pieces of this plane. And not only did they do that, they pushed the White House and pushed the government to give them money to, to be able to reconstruct this plane in a hangar, an old Grumman hangar out on Long Island. And they reconstructed a good portion for the first time, the good portion of the, of the plane. The reason they did that, they wanted to see was there some entrance and exit holes where a missile would have been shot through. Was there some flowering effect or rippling effect on the, uh, on the metal that would show that it was a bomb that blew, that blew up? And um, they concluded in the end that the highly probable that it was uh, an accident caused by a uh, for, frayed wiring that uh, sparked the uh, almost empty uh, center fuel tank that blew up. Milton's book, In the Blink of an Eye, tells the story of a number of victims of Flight 800 and their families. Rance Hetler is one who came to mind, a football and track star from Montoursville High School in Pennsylvania. He was headed to Paris as part of a trip with the school's French club. When he died that night, his parents made it a point to let Jim Kallstrom from the FBI know that it was their son's ambition to one day be an FBI agent. Stories like that one helped drive the agents on their journey to find answers. Also on the flight that night was one Michel Breistroff, a Harvard graduate and French ice hockey player who was headed to Paris that night to make it home for a tournament. It was his dream to one day make the French Olympic ice hockey team. Before leaving Manhattan that night, Michel asked his girlfriend Heidi Snow to marry him. They'd met on a beach in Martha's Vineyard and they both knew they wanted a life together. Heidi Snow's grief is unimaginable, but her story is also inspiring. She turned that pain into an organization that now helps others who experience that unimaginable loss. This is Heidi Snow's story. These anniversaries have to be very difficult. Is is 25 uh, more difficult? Um. Well, it's definitely as as time goes on, sometimes it feels like the incident just happened and sometimes it feels as though the time has passed and trying to envision what our loved ones would look like 25 years later and, and who they'd be today is, um, you know, a very thoughtful and, and difficult process all at the same time as we envision who they would have become in our lives. Yeah, and and um, just the story. Your story is um, especially heartbreaking. I mean, every life lost on on that flight is a heartbreaking story. But Michelle was um, seemed like a real uh, special uh, individual, and um, you know, I was always struck by his story. Harvard educated athlete, um, you know, very good looking young man uh, with the world world ahead of him, and then. You know, right before he left on the flight, um, got engaged to the woman he loved. Yeah, it, it, he was all of those things. He was remarkable. Um, we had met um, by the beach in Martha's Vineyard, and following that, he was uh, at Harvard as a hockey player, and I had started a career working in finance, and 
Um, and then he got recruited to play for some uh, overseas hockey teams, uh, professional teams. And then, but on July 17th, we were in New York City together uh, when he boarded Flight 800. And I was to join him in Europe a few days later after I was completed an exam in finance. And I still remember that day so well, every moment of it. Um, he called just before he boarded the plane. And at the final boarding announcements, we exchanged our final I love yous. And, and then he said he would call when he arrived in Paris. And then uh, about a half hour later, I get a call from my mother saying, please tell me that Michelle wasn't going to Paris tonight. And I just remember turning on the TV to the Flight 800 debris burning on the dark Atlantic Ocean. And I just remember my mind began racing, thinking this could not possibly be his flight. He was young, and he was just talking to me less than an hour ago. So at that point, it seemed impossible that he could possibly be in the images that I was viewing. And then for a few minutes, I remember people saying that they are, they're looking for survivors. And I remember just looking at the flames, and then they said that they had life rafts out on the ocean. And I thought, for sure, he's young, he's strong, he's definitely on one of those boats, and he's going to be okay. And then, and then I kept thinking maybe somehow he didn't even get on the plane. So all these thoughts go racing through your mind. And he, I was thinking, he's still going to call me when he gets to Paris because he just could not be gone. And um, I still remember those moments just so painfully and difficult and, and all these thoughts that went through my mind. But in my heart, I knew the unspeakable truth when I turned on the TV and saw that. And then later that evening or early morning at 2 a.m., they confirmed that he was on board. And I just remember being in shock at that moment as the time went on. And I just couldn't believe that he could possibly be gone. So I still held hope that somehow he'd survive this, even though what I saw on TV looked impossible. Um, just thinking, and we just exchanged our warm and tearful goodbyes. And, and at that point, just expecting a separation just days. And then kind of learning as the hours went on that the separation was forever. And that was really, really difficult. And I was still just, because it takes so long with aviation disasters for remains to be recovered. There's just a lot of time spent, you know, holding on to hope that somehow they made it or somehow they weren't actually on board um, because you just don't have that confirmation that you would get with other types of loss um, that the person, you don't you know, their physical remains, which it makes it harder to believe that they're truly gone. You you really you, you 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 turned this into um an amazing story of motivation and help and love and understanding for people who would go through this god forbid uh in the future. How 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 quickly did you turn it into that? Well, I just remember being at the we all met in New York for a while while we waited for the remains to be announced if our loved ones were found. We were at the Ramada Inn and near the airport. And one thing that I just found really hard is that they had to shut down the site and, and still his body had not been recovered. And there was a lot of support there. But I remember just going back to the city and no one around me comprehended what had happened. And he still had not been found. And I 
just was really looking for someone to talk to who could understand a plane crash and the enormity of that. And I remember going to the city, um, it was Giuliani at the time, who was the mayor, and asking his office, is there a support group for plane crashes? And and I was told, well, there isn't, but we, we need one. Um, and I remember, it, you know, I heard those words, and then one of the people working in the office said, you know, there are the people from Pan Am 103. They lost people eight years ago. They might be good to talk to, and I know that they're having a meeting. And so I um, went to the Pan Am 103 meeting. It had been eight years for them, and a lot of them showed up more than normal at this meeting because they were reliving their loss watching TWA happen. It was bringing them all back to what had happened with them. Um, And at that meeting, I just walked in the room and it was just, I was with people who really understood the enormity of what had happened. And, and at that meeting, I said, you know, I'm here, but there aren't other people from TWA here, but I think that a lot of people like myself would benefit from talking to you because you have a perspective that is so valuable to us. And at that meeting, a bunch of people came forward and offered their phone number, and they told us who they lost. And and then I remember going back to New York City. Um, I worked at a hedge fund. It's not what I expected to uh, continue into, but I started pairing TWA uh, parents to Pan Am 103 parents. And those connections and those relationships that were made were, you know, people were coming back to me saying it was really helpful to talk to so-and-so who I'd put them in touch with because they knew how to, you know, how do I clean up my child's room? How do I live with this? How do I move forward? And they were so helpful with practical advice. Um, And then from that moment, I, you know, I kind of went on to say, well, you know, how do we formalize this and make sure that we're there for other families? And then I set up an 800 number for anyone who had lost somebody in an air disaster. And we started to get calls for help from other incidents that had happened, and the pairing continued. So we really patched mothers, uh, mothers to mothers, siblings to siblings, spouses to spouses, um, is how we paired people up. And just to give people the guidance and tools and the hope that they could get through the next day. And now we've you know, responded to thousands of families over the years from all different incidents. And, and unfortunately, after flight 800 with air crash, so suddenly all of our the TWA families and our Pan Am families started mentoring those from that incident. And then Egypt air crashed. Um, there was just a bunch of aviation air disasters um, out of JFK. And then Alaska Airlines happened in the West Coast. And so the, the need for our care grew really quickly. Um, and then, of course, 9-11 happened. And then, you know, so we had so many families on call to mentor all those newly bereaved from that as well. So, um, our organization is just out of need as time went on. And now we have an amazing network of 250-year trained grief mentors who have all lost people in past incidents who are on call for families for more recent ones. And, and that still goes on. And, and from that, I actually also wrote a book. I started interviewing the families. So that way we could have another way to make sure people could learn how to get through their losses, like from the moment it happened and, and how they took their next steps in their lives. And so I, I interviewed a bunch of our grief mentors who were so generously donate their time to be there for other families. And we share our stories and really just make sure that no one feels like they're alone after an incident like this. And again, with aviation air disasters in particular, there are so many factors, such as not having any remains in some of our incidents. And so then we pair someone, we pair people together. So if they've learned that they're probably the plane will never be found, we'll put them in touch with another 
family who also never had the opportunity to have any confirmation about the incident that happened or any remains and just have somebody else in that situation because most of the world certainly could never comprehend that, um, not having anything tangible to hold on to. The organization Access can be found at accesshelp.org. That's access, A-C-C-E-S-S, help.org. I'd like uh, to introduce the governor for a minute. He'd like to say a few words. Uh, and then we'll come back and talk about the investigation. Thank you, thank you Bob. Let me just again thank the federal officials, uh, particularly the NTSB and the FBI. An early supporter of Heidi Snow was the then governor of New York, George Pataki. Our Peter Haskell spoke to him this week about his recollections. Boy, it still seems so fresh. And uh, uh, the thing that I'll never forget was just the complete anguish and... Uh, and sorrow of the families who were arriving from all over the country and in fact all over the world many from france to find out what had happened to their loved ones and sadly you know of course uh none of them survived it was just an incredible uh, emotional uh, trip for me to see the suffering of those who lost their loved ones I suspect when you take office like governor, there are a lot of things you've got to deal with, budgets and the like. But I I suspect there's not a lot of training to be a, a consoler and a healer in chief. You know, this was, uh, you, know, you prepare to be governor. I knew the state issues and policies extremely well, but to deal with the human suffering of that magnitude, as we saw with TWA 800, it's just something that uh, you have to experience. You can't be prepared for it. And one of the things that struck me was how completely unprepared the state was to deal with the families, to deal with the survivors, to deal with those who had such an, such an emotional sense of loss. We didn't have any protocol to establish a center. We didn't have any informational clearinghouse where we could centralize all the flow of information. Uh, and it just added to the to the sorrow of those who had come uh, to find out the fate of their loved ones. So it was an important lesson for me, and it's one that uh, I put I took to heart. So that when we did have the horrible, horrible attacks of September 11th, one of the first things uh, I did was to make sure we set up a family center uh, where we would have that uh, counseling, the support, the help, and the information that we could provide to the families of those who lost loved ones. How did you personally find your footing dealing with these families, and, and how did these kind of services and programs unfold? Well, you just have to understand that in a time like that, you have to be one who provides strength and support to those who have lost so much. For all the anguish I and the, everyone was feeling, just uh, seeing what had happened to the to the people on this horrible flight you just have to understand that your role at that point is to be strong and to be supportive and i'll tell you what gave me tremendous tremendous help was we had people uh, family members from earlier flights professional counselors grief counselors come voluntarily to the hotel at kennedy where the family members ultimately congregated and just provide them with the, uh, the help the support uh, I remember uh, a woman who lost, I believe it was her husband, on a on a flight 
who came in and just would go from family to family telling them she understood their pain because she had suffered it, but she got through it and they would too. And it was that type of support that was just enormously helpful to those family members. And uh, uh, so on September 11th, we knew to have a dedicated facility plus the support that the family members would need when, when you've suffered that type of loss. How did you get word of this explosion? And when you got there, what did you think? You know, I uh, I talked to uh, the state police would have notified me right away. And, and then, of course, when something of this magnitude happens, you go. Uh, and at first, uh, there was great uncertainty. There was uncertainty as to what exactly had happened. Had the plane been the victim of a terrorist attack? Had it been shot down from a... Uh, 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 RPG fired from the ground that had just exploded. Uh, there was also uncertainty as to whether or not there might be any survivors. It was unlikely, but it was not impossible. So it, it was just a chaotic time. And my role is to try to, at that point, was to try to make some order out of that chaos, provide as much correct information as we possibly could, uh, and and determine as quickly as possible what happened. But I have to tell you, uh, that's where I met Jim Kallstrom, who just passed away. Jim was the head of the FBI office at that point, and he led the investigation into the cause of that flight. And uh, during that investigation, on that day, the days thereafter, and during that investigation, Jim Kallstrom was just a tower of strength and helping me to help the families cope with what they had lost. You talked about the the thoughts and the theories about the potential of terrorism. You were asked specifically about that, I know, right at the very beginning. Was there a temptation to give in to that notion and that theory, and and what what lesson do you take from that? Well, you know, there were there were uh, lots of rumors that it was a terrorist attack. There were eyewitness accounts of uh, uh, people seeing a streak go from the ground up to the plane. There were other accounts of strange people in vehicles uh, loitering at the end of uh, the JFK runway. So so it was something that had to be considered seriously, but uh, at the same time, you know, the NTSB, the federal officials and the FBI who were conducting the investigation we're going to do a thorough job. We knew they'd do a thorough job, and uh, and you just had to uh, understand that until more information was obtained, as much as everybody desperately was looking for an answer, uh, there was wasn't an answer at that point until the investigation had been completed. And yet, after the report came out, and still to this day, there are people who who swear to the fact that this was a, a, a missile. How do, how do you counter that? How do you deal with that? You just have to be as thorough and proactive in laying out the facts uh, to, to establish what in fact happened, to debunk those who, who for whatever reasons, mostly emotional, uh, have to conclude in their own mind that it was something else. You know, there are those who are convinced TW-800 to this day was a bomb, and there are those who are convinced to this day that the, the September 11th attacks were... Uh, were not conducted by um, uh, al-Qaeda. And you just have to be very thorough in your facts, understanding in your response, but ultimately confident 
that what you're saying is, in fact, what happened. So what did happen to Flight 800 that night? It took more than a year for the FBI to come out and say there was no evidence of a bomb or missile, despite what some witnesses say they saw. It would then be up to federal aviation investigators to dig in, which is exactly what they did. We spoke this week to CBS News travel editor Peter Greenberg about TWA 800. He covered it 25 years ago. Peter is our go-to resource for any aviation story. Peter, uh, tell me a little bit about the 747 at that point in time. Uh, one of the safest, sturdiest aircraft in aviation history. Would you say that? Oh, it had a remarkable safety record. Um, and at the same time, the planes were getting older. And when you make a plane, you know, there's no owner's manual that says after a certain amount of mileage, or in this case, hours, you have to change certain things then there are things you always have to change. They call C-checks and D-checks, where you're at a certain number of cycles, meaning takeoffs and landings, the plane is brought in for a very expensive dressing down, if you will. They literally take the plane apart and rebuild it uh, from the inside out. Uh, this plane was an older version of the 747. It was, I believe, 21 or 22 years old at that point, um, and was nearing uh, one of those cycles where they're going to have to do a C and a D-check. Uh, however, there are parts of the plane that Boeing never thought, never even imagined would need maintenance, one of which were the fuel tanks and the wiring within the fuel tanks. There was no manual uh, that the FAA had or that the airline had or that the manufacturer had for inspection of certain of those parts because nobody ever thought they'd ever need it. Critical structural parts, you bet. You know, wing spars and engine mounts and metal fatigue checks and, and um, you know, landing gears, things that moved. Uh, wiring on the inside of a gas tank, um, they didn't really necessarily think it was a problem. And as they certain, soon learned, maybe it was. This was one of the most exhaustive uh, investigations of an aviation uh, tragedy in, in U.S. history, probably. And you alluded to... Uh, the criminal investigation that was parallel from the start because almost everybody um, uh, from a federal investigative uh, end thought that this was terrorism right away just because of the climate we were living in, because uh, there was no warning uh, from the pilots in the cockpit. It just happened. It was just an explosion. Um, As a result of that, Peter, uh, did the NTSB investigation take a backseat from the beginning? Was it a longer NTSB aviation investigation because the the FBI had the front seat right away? It was a much longer investigation because normally the NTSB is not a regulatory agency. They're an investigative agency, and they can only make recommendations to the policymaking agency, which is the FAA. This was essentially considered a crime scene, and the FBI basically took command. And that slowed a lot of things down because they were looking for things that the NTSB necessarily wasn't looking for. Uh, However, as the NTSB began to assemble the data, it was an internal struggle, if you will, uh, between what they were finding and what the FBI was looking for. And they were in conflict for quite some time. And ultimately, it took the head investigator for the FBI, the head of the New York field office, James Kallstrom, uh, by the way, who recently just passed away, uh, to come to grips with the fact that there was no missile, there was no terrorist act, whatever happened to that plane happened in that center fuel tank. And, uh, and it was the NTSB testing other airframes to be able to prove that point that, that turned the FBI around. 
So the FBI steps away. Uh, I was at the news conference that James Kallstrom had when they played the CIA uh, video um, reconstruction of how it happened to try and let people know uh, what it was that they saw at a distance. And it, uh, the federal authorities went to great pains uh, to, to show that they really tracked this down to, 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 to the best degree possible. Well, remember, things were taking place in silos at this point. They had to put it together. And as the NTSB started to listen to the transcript of the cockpit voice recorder, they learned something quite interesting. Uh, they knew a couple of things. Number one, you know, they go back and they backtrack the entire performance of the plane even before it took off that night. It had just landed from Athens. Uh, it had fought huge headwinds and had used, most up, used up most of its fuel so that when it landed on that July afternoon, uh, it was down to about 70 gallons of fuel in the center fuel tank, um, and they had wing tanks as well. Well, interestingly enough, on that day, I remember it very well, it was about 96 degrees outside, um, and that plane got very hot. That plane was then headed to Europe that night, and it, only, it did not have a full load of passengers, and as they had fought a headwind to New York, they were benefiting from a tailwind heading, heading east. And so there was no need to fill the center fuel tank. They could fill the wing tanks and have plenty of fuel for their alternate airport if they needed it. And that would be standard operating procedure because every airline will tell you that fuel adds weight and it costs a lot of money. They did not need the extra fuel. They did not fill the fuel tank in the center. Well, in that center fuel tank, you only had 70 gallons of fuel and a lot of fumes that were heating up to what you would consider a flashpoint of vapor. And a flashpoint of vapor, you may notice that if you ever have a natural gas leak and it's coming out of pressure, the odds of it exploding are reduced. If you have a natural gas leak that is leaking at a slow amount and vaporizing, that any source of ignition will cause an explosion. So what you had here in that center fuel tank, barring anything else, uh, was, was the possibility of an explosion if there was a, an ignition source. And keep in mind that if you, fill the fuel, if you fill the center fuel tank, there can't be an ignition source because there's no oxygen in there. That was not the case on this particular flight. And as they listened to, this, to the transcripts of the flight of, 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 the, of the cockpit voice recorder, they heard the following. You know, that was an older model 747, so it was a three-man crew in the cockpit. It was a pilot, co-pilot, and flight engineer. And as the plane was climbing out uh, on its flight path, the flight engineer noticed that there was, a, there was a, a sort of a disconnect between the amount of fuel in the left tank of the wing and the right tank of the wing. Not a safety issue, just a performance issue. So he brought it to the attention of the pilot, and they had a very easy fix for that. Pump fuel from the left tank to the right tank through the center fuel tank. That requires turning on a fuel pump in the left tank to pump it in the center tank, and then turning on the, the pump in the center tank to pump it into the right tank. And at about 8,000 feet, as they then turned on the pump in the center tank to pump it into the right tank, that's the flashpoint. That's when the explosion happened. Because the wires in that center fuel tank had been corroded for so many years by the toxicity of the fuel that you had open wires that could arc if there was a, a sort of a, an ignition point. And the ignition point was the electrical charge to activate the pump. If it was a full tank, there would have been no ignition. But there wasn't. And you had a massive explosion. 
So, so Peter, with all this very specific information that they uh, gathered from from an exhaustive investigation, why is it, do you think, that there are still lingering conspiracy theorists uh, uh, talking about this? Well, you know, eyewitnesses to aviation accidents often see things at a different time than they hear them. Um, and that's basically the speed of light versus the speed of sound. Um, and they determined, and it was relatively easy to do that, that all the eyewitnesses who claimed that they saw a missile streaking towards the plane actually heard the explosion first. And then when they looked up, what they really saw was burning fuel streaming from the plane. And maybe people don't want to believe that, but in real time, that's exactly what happened. Peter, finally, the legacy uh, with regard to aviation safety. What happened as a result of what we learned here? Are we safer today, 25 years later? The answer is maybe, because the military knew for years about corrosion in fuel tanks. And in fact, they had a better program to fix that than than commercial aviation. So as a result of the investigation of TWA Flight 800, there was a clear and, 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 and compelling case to redo the manuals for further inspection of those center fuel tanks. It took a while, but now they're doing it. Um, and they're doing it much more aggressively. And as you may have noticed, we haven't had a situation since. We had two situations before it, by the way, that people forget. A Philippine Airlines 737 that had the exact same center fuel tank explosion, thankfully, on the ground in Manila, and one other case as well. So they had some historical data to go on. But the good news is, you know, if we're going to learn from these accidents, we have to then apply those lessons. And the application of those lessons in this case is further inspections of those critical wirings inside fuel tanks, and now they've, now they've been able to do that. And what about uh, keeping fuel in the center tank? Does that, has that changed at all? It has. Um, you know, you never want fumes in a tank, especially when you add temperature to it and a possible source of ignition. So the operating manuals have been changed in terms of how you balance weight and fuel on a plane, especially on planes that have three separate tanks. And in this case, that applies. Peter, anything I didn't ask you that we should be uh, talking about today? The one thing that is, that is overriding to me is that every year, the National Transportation Safety Board publishes its 10 most wanted list. And what that is are all the urgent safety recommendations they've made to the FAA that were either not acted upon or ignored. Uh, it's publicly available. You can get it online. But what it tells us is the FAA up until recently seems to have moved very, very slow, in fact, very slow, in acting upon these urgent safety recommendations, uh, not erring on the side of caution, but erring on the side of economic impact to either manufacturers or, or operators. And in the wake of the Boeing 737 MAX case, when the behavior of the FAA became quite obvious and quite public, hopefully we're turning around so that those NTSB recommendations are going to be taken more seriously and acted upon more quickly. The last word goes to my friend Pat Milton from CBS News, who wrote the book on TWA 800 titled In the Blink of an Eye. What is the legacy of this explosion, this tragedy uh, that you uh, take with you at 25 years later? I think it remains uh, the humanity. I think there remains the, the preciousness of life, that uh, things can change in the blink of an eye. But uh, the, the preciousness of how people came together, bonded together, still have relationships to this day 
agents, victims, family members, and uh, and and journalists, and are still close today. And it 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 just shows you that uh, compassion and uh, courage uh, emerge from some uh, from a horrific event. Our thanks to everyone who spent time helping us remember Flight 800. Peter Greenberg, George Pataki, Pat Milton, Peter Haskell, and of course Heidi Snow. Her organization, accesshelp.org, is worth supporting. We can only imagine what a resource that is for people in need. She imagined it, she put it together, and we are better because of it. That's accesshelp.org. 880 In-Depth is a production of WCBS News Radio 880. Peter Haskell and myself, Tim Scheld, are the executive producers. Find us wherever you get your audio, search 880 In-Depth, and listen to us on your time. Thank you for listening, and be safe. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com.